Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and this is But That's Another Story. From time to time, I have a terrifying dream. I call it the reader's nightmare. I'm in a busy airport, and they've announced my flight. There is an epic walk to the gate, and I know I only have a few minutes before they'll close the door to the jetway and my plane will leave without me. Suddenly, I realize that I don't have a book to read on the flight. Not one single book. I spin around, my eyes searching frantically for a bookstore. I see none. I run through the airport, and still, I can't find a bookstore. Now, over the loudspeakers, comes the final call for my plane. I realize that I'm almost certainly going to miss my flight. But the idea of hours on a plane without a book? Intolerable. So I run and run, searching for that bookstore, or at least a newsstand with a rack of paperbacks. I can't find a single book anywhere in the airport. I start to scream. Then I wake up. I don't have this dream about food or television or movies or music. My unconscious is largely untroubled by the idea of spending hours in a metal tube hurtling through the sky without something to eat or a program to watch or tunes in my ears. It's the thought of being bookless for hours that jolts me awake in a cold sweat. Throughout my life, I've looked to books for all sorts of reasons, to comfort me, to amuse me, to distract me, and to educate me. But just because you know that you can find anything you need in a book doesn't mean you can easily find your way to the right book at the right time, the one that tells you what you need to know or feel when you need to know or feel it. Some of you might recognize that little anecdote. It's one I shared at the beginning of Books for Living. It came across my mind recently when I was thinking about the ways our anxieties can shape our lives, something I discussed with today's guest. My name is Amanda Stern, and I'm an author and a human person. Amanda Stern is the author of a novel, of children's books, and most recently, of Little Panic, a memoir about her experience living with anxiety and growing up in Manhattan. Amanda is a fourth-generation New Yorker, but her childhood was a little atypical for a city kid. Much of it took place in a garden. I grew up in Greenwich Village in Manhattan in a private community garden that was only accessible through one of the houses. And it was just this kind of country setting in the middle of the city. And we invented our own games and we had Halloween parades, and we had Christmas carols, and we had traditions and rituals, and it was like a little town without a bank or a school or a post office. We walked around barefoot. We just weren't expected to wear shoes. We didn't have to wear shoes. We'd march up after, you know, some weird dinner that we would have, breakfast for dinner at like, you know, 8 p.m. and then we'd march up to Brentano's or B. Dalton up 6th Avenue barefoot. B. Dalton the bookseller. Yeah. But so it was it was one or the other. It was B. Dalton or Brentano's. We would go up there and in our little bare feet and our, you know, ragamuffin knotted hair and go in the bookstore and just like use it as a library. And I, I read entire books there where I would I would read. And so we'd all like sit down in the aisles and we'd all just read. 
Amanda's parents separated when she was a baby. So while she spent time in the garden downtown with her mom, the weekends she spent with her father were in an entirely different setting. We were sort of expected to be different people. We were these little ragamuffin bohemians downtown, but uptown we had like, you know, these Peter Pan collared shirts that we had to wear and we had to comb our hair, which was something that wasn't a thing we did. It was just a very sort of formal, clinical sort of uptown world that wasn't very familiar to us, even though we would go every other weekend. We always felt like we were in some sort of a museum or where we couldn't touch even the furniture or we were expected to be the display. And, um, and it was awkward. It was just very uncomfortable because it's not who we were. Early on, one of the ways that Amanda learned to deal with feeling uncomfortable in her surroundings was through reading. I was really, really into Ramona and Beezus. And I, I read those books repeatedly. You know, since I grew up in this community, I sort of needed familiarity. And so I would usually, if I got attached to a book, I would read it over and over and over like it was a dear friend of mine. I knew what was going to happen. I knew no one was going to die. I knew nothing, you know, I, I knew everything that was going to happen. That was very soothing for me. But even reading could not combat the much deeper anxieties that she experienced on a day-to-day basis. I was very, like, dreadfully afraid of the world. And I couldn't leave my mom without fearing that she would die or disappear. I was unable to make it through a weekend at my dad's house without calling her and sort of forcing her to come get me. I was really preoccupied with death and disappearance, and I was very focused on trying to calm myself down by worrying out loud, hoping that someone would sort of recognize what I was doing, but that didn't always work. The fears were really mortifying to me, and I was ashamed of them, and I didn't know how to deal with them, and I would often become so overwhelmed that I would float away, and I spent a majority of my childhood, like, on the ceiling, watching everything. When I was around eight, for whatever reason, there was a plan to send me to sleepaway camp for two months which is like not the best idea for a kid with, you know, who can't have one night of sleepovers. But that was the plan. And about a month before I was supposed to go away on this like two month, you know, terror trip, I answered the door to a cop who held up a picture of this sweet looking little boy and asked if I had seen him. That night there was helicopters flying over, the village, there were bloodhounds, you could hear the sort of the jangle of the bloodhound, the leashes, and there was um, a loudspeaker system, cops were saying, have you seen this little boy? And, and everyone was really gripped by this, and I kept on asking my mom, like, what, where did he go? Where did he go? What happened? What happened? And she, you know, was, wanted me to not be so afraid and said he probably ran away and he'd be fine, he'd be home. 
The police were looking for Eitan Pates, a six-year-old who disappeared while walking to his school bus stop in Soho. The case captivated the city, and when Amanda returned from the two months away at camp, the disappearance continued to weigh on her. When I came home, I was walking in Soho with my mom and my brother and my sister, and I saw a still-missing sign for Aton Pates, and I, I just couldn't believe I had forgotten. And then I saw that, that like, cafes and restaurants had been plastering over the still-missing signs with new signs, and that triggered something in me that, that was really deep. Every bit of that story, I mean, it affected every single human being who has a heart. Um, but for someone like me who was just riddled with anxiety and panic and preoccupied with death and disappearance, I, you know, I had been told my entire life that bad things like this don't happen to kids. Bad things like this won't happen to me. Bad things won't happen to people I know or care about. And this one event sort of cemented everything that I had feared as being true and led me to understand that adults really can't be trusted and that I've been right all along and that everything that I've ever feared has been true. I didn't understand how the world worked. No one explained anything to me. So reality became very scary. And I, and I think that for a lot of kids with anxiety, when the world is explained to them, no matter how true and scary it is, it eases their anxiety. And that never happened for me. It was denied constantly. Don't worry, don't worry. And it's like, but I am worried, so address it. But it was never, ever addressed. When we come back from the break, Amanda comes across a book that finally addresses her deepest fears. Author Amanda Stern had spent her childhood suffering from debilitating anxiety, with books like Beezus and Ramona as one of her only respites. And as she moved into adulthood, a fateful encounter with one book would prove to be even more helpful. When I was in my 20s, I started to date an alcoholic, which is what you do when you're in your 20s. And about five or six years in, I just was depleted and miserable, and I needed to get out of it. And I ended up going to this therapist. I kept on asking her what was going to happen. And she said to me during one session, you have to live the questions and I thought, that's so brilliant. Like, yeah, I, I, I guess. Like, I have to, you know, she kept on saying, like, you can't, there are no quick answers to anything. You have to, uncertainty is what life is about, and you have to live with uncertainty, and you have to live the questions. And anxiety is a fear of uncertainty. It all sort of meant something to me in a, in a deeper way. And I, I said, that is, this is just so smart. And 
she said, well, it's not mine. And I said, well, whose is it? And she said, it's, it's Rainer Rilke. And I said, I don't know who that is. And she said, oh, well, you must read Letters to a Young Poet. That's where I got it from. And I said, how much time is left in our session? And she was like, 20 minutes. And I said, okay, I'm going to leave early because I'm going to get that book. And I went and I got the book. It's right here. And um, Is that your copy? Yeah. The, the copy you got? This is the copy I got. And then um, I went to a cafe and I read it and I underlined a lot and it did something it provided me with so much of what I needed that that therapist actually couldn't provide me with reading Rilke also gave Amanda the push she needed to explore the career she really wanted to pursue writing it was also at the same time when I was realizing that I wanted to choose writing as my profession. And I, I didn't know that that was a viable option. I didn't know if I should. And this book addressed basically all of my questions about what to do with my life, my fear of being alone, my fear of uncertainty. And so it, 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 every single struggle I had was, in, was addressed in this book. The structure of Letters to a Young Poet made it feel even more like it was speaking directly to Amanda. It's just 10 letters to this young student who is asking him for writing advice and basically saying, here's this poem I wrote. Can you tell me if it's any good? And the first letter is Rilke writing back and saying, never ask anyone whether a work of art is any good. You know, the, don't look outside of yourself for the answers. You have to look in. And I was like, yes, Rilke, yes. And every, every letter was like that. And then I got to the live the questions. And, and I read that and I underlined that. And he was like, you, you have to, you know, live the questions. And, and, and one day you'll live your way in, into the answer. And I was like, brother, you have it going on. Like he knew everything. It gave me permission. Everything in it gave me permission to go ahead and break up with my boyfriend, become a writer, don't be afraid of solitude, don't be afraid of uncertainty. And it just provided me with so much comfort. And every time I floundered or second-guessed myself, I, I read the book. Or I, I would just turn to some of the underlying passages and reread them. And I carried this book with me, like, in my bag. And Letters to a Young Poet also gave Amanda the tools she had been searching for to combat her anxiety. The way that I grew up, my, my mom shielded me from a lot of hardships, or tried to. And I think that that is a mistake that parents make raising an anxious child. And it's, they do it with absolute love and great intention, but it, it's, it's not, you can't protect a child from what they're afraid of. So I grew up being afraid of reality and wanting answers for it. And no one had ever taught me really the truth about anything. And 
when I when I read letters to a young poet, I felt like it was this parental figure, or like a mentor, or a you know an older friend, giving it to me straight, but in the most eloquent, beautiful way. And it was everything that I, everything that I feared, like being alone and being uncertain. I was so afraid of reality. And I guess because no one had ever explained things to me, I thought I would also be afraid of the answers. And Rilke answered my fears in a way that made me not afraid of reality. And he gave me the truth in a palatable way. So I felt unafraid to, to take the next steps into adulthood. I felt unafraid, or not unafraid, but less afraid. I, I was given a confidence that, um, that I would survive these, these episodes of reality, of, being al- of breaking up with someone and being alone for the first time since I was like 17. And it gave me an energy and a a sort of sense of adventure almost that I was going to follow the same route as this person who gave the best advice I'd ever heard and that I was sort of under his guidance in some way. It was my constant comfort and a stability that I had never had. And the the answers that I want are all right there and they never change, ever. No one's going back on their word. No one's revising, you know, it's just, it's all right here. Amanda became a writer, publishing the novel The Long Haul and, under the name A.J. Stern, the children's series Frankly Franny. But when it came time to write her next book, she found herself reflecting on Rilke's advice again. I had been trying and trying and trying to write my my next book, and every every iteration was was sort of ruined by my own personal story creeping in. And I thought, man, you know, I don't I want to use my childhood. I wanted to incorporate them into a novel, but I couldn't seem to figure out how to do it without writing my own story. And so I would stop writing the book I was writing and start a new one. And I just kept on doing that until finally, like, so many years had passed. And, you know, I was like, I'm about to be using a walker. Like, I have to get on with this. And I realized that I wouldn't be able to write my next novel if I didn't get my own story out of the way. So I, I thought I would just start writing it to get it out and to do everything that I imagined I would do. If I ever wrote a memoir, I wanted to just get it out. And it sort of became the book I had been trying to write. And I realized that I couldn't write it because it wasn't a novel. And... I had a lot of trepidation about writing a memoir and also about being really honest about um, essentially a mental illness. And um, But I felt like I had no choice. This is what I must do. 
This is the book I must be writing. Do you think you would have written this book if you hadn't read Letters to a Young Poet? I mean, well, that's a hard question, actually, to answer, because if I hadn't read Letters to a Young Poet, would I be a writer? So I guess the answer is, you know, A, I don't know, and B, I probably, I don't know if I would be a writer. Not publicly. Privately, yes. But I don't know. I don't know. I haven't thought of that. I hadn't, I've never asked myself that. But That's Another Story is produced by Katie Ferguson, with editing help from Alyssa Martino, Alex Abnos, and Becky Celestina. Thanks to Amanda Stern and Gretchen Koss. If you'd like to know more about the books we mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. You can also find a transcript of this episode and past ones on LitHub. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at anotherstory@macmillan.com. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening.